Thank you to Ian and the musicians leading us. Let's come to God first of all in prayer. Let's pray together. This morning we thought about the importance of hearing God's word, but also putting it into practice. Lord, we pray that as we focus on your word, your uncomfortable word, your challenging word, that you will take my lips and speak through them. You'll take our minds and think with us as we wrestle with what you're saying to us. Help us to understand clearly and to put into practice what you say to us so that indeed our lives bear evidence that we are being transformed by your word and by your spirit who takes your word and applies it to us and makes us more like Jesus. We ask that individually. Corporate is a congregation of your people. So be with us now and prepare our hearts and minds as we come around this table to celebrate what Christ did for us when he died on the cross. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three and a half thousand years ago, at midnight, on the 14th day of the Hebrew month Abib, an unimaginable catastrophe struck Egypt, the mightiest nation on earth. From the hovel of the slave girl to the palace of the Pharaoh, a terrible cry of anguish began to escalate till the whole land rang with the awful, terrible lament. In every home, in every family, the firstborn child was dead. And not only children, but animals as well. At times of tragedy, the most frequently voiced question is, why? The answers to such questions are usually complex, sometimes unfathomable. But in this particular case, there can be absolutely no doubt if the Bible is to be believed. For it records not just what happened, but who was directly responsible. It states quite clearly that what occurred on that terrible night was an act of God. Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. It was an act of God. Not just a cover term used by insurance companies to account for the unaccountable, but a divine intervention. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ struck down in death the firstborn in every family in Egypt. God did it. Now, let me ask you a very serious question. Do you believe in such a God? 
Would you be embarrassed to admit tomorrow when you go to university or work that this is the same God you worship every Sunday in this place? Maybe you don't worship such a God. That was the response of the Pharaoh when he was told that the Lord God of Israel said, let my people go. This is what he said. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I don't know the Lord and I won't let Israel go. Exodus 5 verse 2. And so he did what many people do today. He denied the Lord's existence and he repudiated his word. Now today others are not quite so bold as to deny the God of the Bible, of this book, altogether. They say, well, I follow the God of the New Testament, the God of love, not the God of wrath in the Old Testament. So they get the scissors and cut away the Old Testament and you're left with the New Testament. But here's a problem. When you begin to read the New Testament, there's some pretty shaky stuff that they don't like that's written by this man called Paul who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. And when you come to the last book of the Bible, it's just full of judgment and violence. So let's get rid of it all. Let's just focus simply on the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. And you're left with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Unfortunately... When you come to study Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and read what Jesus actually said and did, there are still some bits that don't fit in very neatly with their picture of God. In fact, quite a lot of the Gospels. No problem, these are editions of the later church. Out come the scissors again. That's what a group of scholars did. Starting in 1985, a group called the Jesus Seminar met together to look at the Gospels to evaluate the words of Jesus. And they voted as follows. They took their highlighting pens and in red, they highlighted bits that Jesus undoubtedly said or something like it. In pink, they highlighted bits that Jesus probably or might have said. In grey, they said quite clearly Jesus didn't say this, but it's pretty close to what he might have said. And in black, They highlighted bits that they said, Jesus didn't say this, it represents a later tradition. And their conclusion in a book that you can read, but I wouldn't waste your time, frankly, called The Five Gospels, What Did Jesus Say? Here's their conclusion. Only 20% of Jesus' statements are likely to have been spoken by him. The other 80%, most assuredly, they say, are unlikely to ever have been written by Jesus. And so we are left with a God we feel comfortable with. One who fits nicely in with contemporary thinking. One who can be shaped and modified at will with a few snips of the scissors. When contemporary thinking changes, as it surely will, a tame God, a comfortable God, a comforting God. Very strange that they accuse those of us who believe the whole of the Bible of easy believism. Surely it's far easier to take out the scissors and believe in the God of your own devising, much harder to wrestle with the God of this book, the uncomfortable and at times, frankly, terrifying God of the Bible. Martin Luther once said to Erasmus, the brilliant 
Christian humanist and leading scholar of the Reformation, he said, the difference between us, Erasmus, is this. You sit above scripture and judge it. I sit below scripture and let it judge me. So I want today, as we should always seek to do, to sit under scripture, to let it judge us as we come to the God of the Bible and ask him to shape our thinking about him and not vice versa. And so we come to these events on that terrible night in Egypt and I need to begin by amending what I said at the beginning. Throughout the whole land of Egypt, there was mourning and death in every home, but one people group was exempted. In the region of Goshen lived an immigrant community of slaves known as the Hebrews or Israelites. Led by a man named Moses, the tragedy did not touch them. Throughout Egypt there was loud mourning. In Goshen there was utter silence. Not even a dog barked. They and they alone were immune from the tragedy. Why? And how? That's our topic. And to find the answer, we turn in our series to this letter in the New Testament. It's called Hebrews because it's written to people who are Hebrews by birth. Written some 1500 years after Moses. And in the 11th chapter, good to turn in your Bibles to it, page 1210. One, and we've been seeing that in this 11th chapter, the writer refers to various well-known people whose lives are described in the Old Testament part of the Bible. People, he says, who all had one thing in common. That is, he says, each one of them lived by faith. That is, they believed God's word and acted on it. That's why we chose the title for this, Living by Faith. And the writer has already started in our series, we've seen this, with the story of this man Moses. And today we come to the events we heard described and read in Exodus 12. And he tells us very clearly why and how the people of Israel averted destruction and instead experienced God's salvation. That's our theme this evening, faith and salvation. So look what he says, this is our verse. We're simply going to focus on this, the background behind it. Hebrews 11, verse 28. By faith, that's Moses, he, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. I want to try and unpack this because what I want to say to you is these are not matters of academic interest or theological curiosity. Rather, they are literally, as for these people in the story, they are matters of life and death. For as we're going to see, the principles behind them are still in operation today. For the Lord God of 1500 BC is the same Lord God of 2006 AD. So we're going to focus on faith, and especially saving faith. And if you're here this morning, looking at James, you'll see some very close connections with what we saw this morning. I've got three points I want to focus on as we think about faith. First of all, faith begins with hearing the word of God. By faith, he kept the Passover. 
Uh, the word kept can mean instituted or put into operation. However, what we need to be very clear about is although the Passover originated at the time of Moses, it didn't originate with Moses. You see, Moses was not some kind of revolutionary who sat down to work out his own political plan of action to free his people from slavery in Egypt. He tried that 40 years ago. One man Israelite liberation army. He failed miserably. So much so that he ran for his life to a distant land and abandoned all his hopes and dreams of being the saviour of his people. He spent 40 years looking after sheep. And it was only then, when the flames of his ambition had been finally extinguished, that the Lord appeared to him in a bush that burned and yet was not consumed. Even more remarkably, God ignited the flame of his presence within the heart of Moses, and yet he was not consumed. Moses did not ignite the bush. If he'd done so, he would have gone out within a week of arriving in Egypt, let alone burn brightly for another 40 years till the end of his life. And all that Moses did from that day originated from this encounter with God. Our previous verse that we looked at in the last in our series, verse 27, it says, Moses saw him who is invisible. And all that Moses said originated not with himself, but from God. You see, it was God's plan of salvation. God appeared to Moses and said. He made himself known to Moses through his word. A word which Moses heard, a word that was communicated to Moses. It was a mandate for his mission. It gave him instructions for its execution. God set the agenda from the very first time Moses returned to Egypt and stood in the court of Pharaoh and said, The Lord God of Israel says, Let my people go. God's plan of salvation was communicated to Moses and then it was communicated by Moses to Pharaoh to the people of Israel. All that Moses said was what God had first said to him. As plague followed plague. As Pharaoh's heart hardened. And finally the Lord finished the process that Pharaoh began. And we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Finally came the instructions for that decisive night of Passover. God's plan of salvation communicated to, then by Moses, culminating in the instructions for Passover. Now, as you read those instructions, they were not dreamed up by Moses and his right-hand man, his brother Aaron, in a brainstorming session. Friends, there's more chance of the proverbial monkey typing out a Shakespeare sonnet on, in a hundred years than there is of them coming up with a plan like this. They'd never have dreamt up such a thing in a million years, you know. Gosh, how are we going to get the people of Israel free? Have you ever thought of getting a lamb? Hmm, good idea. How about a goat? No, a lamb. You know, I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. One commentator, Jeffrey Wilson, writes, Moses instituted the Passover for no other reason than God commanded it. You see, faith, biblical faith, true faith, always begins there. It doesn't begin with us and our plans. And our words. It begins with God and his word. And it begins when we hear that word from God. 
That is the word which Moses received and then proclaimed, not just to Israel, but also to Pharaoh and Egypt. Now, what about us then, 3,500 years on? The message of God's word is still the same in its essence. It is a message of salvation from coming judgment. But now we have a better word from God. From one far greater than Moses, we have Jesus who is God's living word. The opening verses of this little, well, quite a long book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus as God's final word. This is what it says, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So, just get a hold of this, very important. If Jesus is God's final, ultimate, best word, his last word on the subject of salvation, then what he says must be heard. That's the first step. That's why we've got a mission prayer meeting on Wednesday, because we sent out 40 people, well, more than 40, most of them are couples. Because people need to hear. The Apostle Paul, writing... So the Christians in Rome explains this about faith and hearing. He says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So if you're not a Christian this evening, maybe you just walked in off the street, I don't know, or some friends have brought you, whatever, you're at the very first step that leads to salvation. You need to hear God's word. That's why in this church we highlight and emphasise the importance of the proclamation of God's word. It's not because we've got some guys in the church who fancy standing up in the pulpit. No, frankly, no. It's because we believe that God has spoken through his Son, and it's vitally important that people hear what God has said through Jesus. The most important thing of all. But hearing is not enough. Faith begins with hearing the word of God. Here's the second point. thought about it again this morning. Faith proceeds with obeying the command of God. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. You see, the details of the Passover were communicated through Moses to the people. The need to sacrifice the lamb. All the details were given, did you notice, about how and what to eat, right down to the way you should dress when you do it. But the crucial thing, the vital matter, was that the blood of the lamb, when it was sacrificed, had to be sprinkled or smeared on the doorpost and the lintel over the door. In each home, the blood must be sprinkled. If and only if this was actually done by the people, were they promised that the angel of death would spare the firstborn inside that home. The elders of Israel were summoned and Moses said, listen, you've got to go back to each of the community members, each family head, you've got to tell them, this is what you're to do. Listen very carefully to these instructions. Put them into practice. Get the lamb. Choose the right one. Get together. Sacrifice it in this way. Put the blood on your doorposts. Now, I would imagine that such an idea would have seemed pretty ridiculous, frankly. Smearing blood on your door? Even if an event of such mass destruction was really going to take place, how would the blood of a lamb preserve them? Simply only because God claimed to have said it. How are you going to prove it? Well, wait till midnight. Each family must put the instructions in place if judgment is to be averted. 
And if they did not follow these instructions, they would be unprotected even though they belonged to God's people Israel. In an old commentary, which is still available today, if you want a good commentary, many years ago, in the 17th century I think, Matthew Henry writes, If any families of Israel had neglected the sprinkling of the blood upon their doors, though they spent all night in prayer, the destroying angel would have slain the firstborn. You see, faith begins with hearing the word of God and it proceeds with obeying the word of God. Now again, what relevance does this have for us? Because friends, I'm not going to tell you after the service to go home and find a lamb. You know, have Sainsbury's got one on offer. And uh, when you get home, you smear it on your doorpost. No, that's no longer applicable to you. For a very good reason that you ought to be thankful about. Yom Kippur tomorrow in Israel. Jews all over the world will sacrifice lambs like this. Still going through the ritual. Why don't we do it in Charlotte Chapel? For a very good reason. Jesus is not only the Word of God. He is also the Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb was but a pale picture of what God was going to do in the future for the whole world. He's a shadow of the true reality that is to come. So John the Baptist... Amazingly, really, the cousin of Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, there's John baptizing uh, in the River Jordan, and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And what does he say? Welcome, cousin. No, he says, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Some three years later, on another Passover night, 14th month of Abib, in the evening, this same Jesus met with his followers. He said, I want to meet with you. I'm really looking forward to something. I want to share a Passover meal with you before I suffer. They didn't know what he's talking about, really. But they met together for a Jewish Passover. And at the Passover, he took some bread and he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you took a cup of wine he said take this and drink it this is my blood poured out for you and the next day he was nailed to a cross the Lamb of God fulfilling all the requirements of the law of God so that our sin might be forgiven I don't have time to go into the details but it's most remarkable how everything Jesus did when he died on the cross fulfilled every requirement just one simple example. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed, his bones were not to be broken. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, every victim's body, their bones were broken, their legs were broken to help them die quickly, particularly as it was Passover. The body of Jesus was not broken because he was already dead. Just one little detail. So the Apostle Peter, writing to Christians from a Gentile background, not Jews now, that reminds them of how they were rescued or redeemed. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from sin. He says, for you know, it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So, if we have been redeemed, if this evening you are a Christian, 
If you have heard God's word, put it into practice, then the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth and us, he says, let's celebrate. Let's keep the festival. 1 Corinthians 5.7 For Christ, he says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. That's what we're going to do at the conclusion of this service, very appropriately. Many years ago, someone in my first church met me in the street and said, Pastor, you'll never guess what, we're going to do something fantastic this weekend. I said, wow, what is it? I said, we're going to go to a Passover meal and celebrate it. We've been invited to a Jewish Passover. I said, well, very interesting, I said, but we've got something even better on Sunday. I said, what's that, Pastor? I said, communion. It's interesting to find out what happens at Passovers and how it links in and everything. But I said, this is something far better. We won't be sacrificing any animals. Why? Because Christ has been sacrificed. Andrew Murray, a Bible teacher, again from a previous generation, wrote, If Israel thus honoured God's word and trusted in the blood of a lamb, oh, shall we not ten thousand times more honour the blood of the lamb and believe and claim that eternal salvation it brings? The lamb has been sacrificed. His blood has been poured out for the forgiveness of sin. God has done all that is necessary, but it's not just enough to hear about it. Like the Israelites, we need to apply it in our lives and experience the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ from all sin. And you may say, it sounds I don't like all this talk about blood. I simply say, without the shedding of blood, the law of God says there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. It's that serious. It's a matter of life and death. And this leads to the third aspect of faith. We're almost to the end. It begins with hearing the word of God. It proceeds with obeying the command of God. And finally, faith like this results in experiencing the salvation of God. Look how the verse continue, uh, concludes. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. What was the purpose of applying the blood of the lamb to the doorposts and lintel? It was for protection or salvation. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The word Passover is an invented English word. From the action of the angel on that night to pass over. The original word is from a root which means to leap or to skip. To take one thing and leave another. The angel of the Lord did this when he passed through Israel, through Egypt. He discriminated between those who had applied the blood, those who had not. And the outcome was a matter of life and death. Of judgment and death or salvation and life. I began by asking you, do you have a problem with the God of the Passover? The judgment which he executed on that Passover night. Maybe you're asking a question. People, most people would ask a simple question here. How could God kill so many innocent people? But you see, you're looking at it from a human point of view. Look at it from a divine point of view. Are there any innocent people? God's verdict on all human beings is this. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned, all are guilty. All of us live under God's judgment. 
All of us deserve death. And that's why on that night, the people of Israel had to apply the blood. They didn't say, oh, don't you bother about this. The angel of death won't bother you because you're God's special people. No, the angel of death passed through the whole population. All faced the judgment of God. The wonder is not that any were destroyed, but that any were saved. Warning after warning was given. Time after time. Plague after plague. But hearts were only hardened. Until finally, ultimately, decisively, judgment came. But God's desire is not the death of the wicked. Not that we should face his judgment, but rather that we should experience his salvation. Why do we know that? Because God sent his son to die on the cross. To bear the judgment we deserve. To take upon himself God's righteous anger, his wrath against sin and sinners. So that his judgment might be averted. This is God's great love. It's a message of salvation for those who believe. Best known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes, same word, faith, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But people forget the next verse. Jesus goes on to speak about judgment if you don't believe. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so on that fateful night, as in Egypt, there is a great divide. There is a great divide in the population of the world. There is a great divide in this congregation this evening. Today, you are either living by faith and experiencing God's salvation, or you are living your own way and living under God's wrath. Here's the final verse of John 3. Verse 36, I think it is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. It's a very serious message, this. Simply this evening, you are either living under God's salvation or you are living under God's wrath. You're either a prisoner on death row or you're living in the freedom that Christ came to set you free to experience. Final word of conclusion before we come to the Lord's table. You see, one day all of us will die, whether singly or in a group, whether at a young age or an old age, whether by accident, sickness or infirmity. But one of the great and awful themes of the book of Hebrews is this. If those who lived under such a poorer arrangement were judged by God, how much greater is the judgment to those who reject such a great salvation? The crucial question for us who have something, someone so much better is this. Again, the book of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect Ignore such a great salvation. And I simply say this evening, it's the evening of Passover. Maybe it's the hour before midnight. There is still time to repent and believe. And the good news of the gospel is this. No matter who you are, what you've done, no matter how good you think you are, 
no matter how bad you think you are, salvation is offered to you this evening by hearing God's word, the word of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, by obeying it, then you experience God's salvation. So I simply leave you with the challenge. Maybe you can do that for the first time this evening. Take this bread and wine by faith as a symbol of your trust in Christ. That won't save you, the bread and wine. There's nothing magical about it. It's normal bread, normal... It's actually not even alcoholic wine for those who struggle with that area. But the symbol says, I'm trusting in Christ for my salvation. The final warning from the book of Hebrews is this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Have a soft heart, a receptive heart. Hears, receives God's word. May God help you and each one of us to do that so that we celebrate this festival together. We're going to sing a song that great